0: And welcome to Consumer Choice Radio for broadcasting on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, Saturdays at 10 in the morning. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, reporting to you from Vienna, Austria. It's an amazing weekend, and I'm joined, as always, by my trusty colleague, David Clement in Toronto. David, sir, how goes it?
1: Going very well. It's going very well. Coming off... uh... Coming off a couple of days in Canada's gorgeous cottage country in Muskoka, so I'm feeling pretty good. No complaints. Also,
0: well, uh, well rested, refreshed. Yes. You got you got plenty of beverages uh, under your wing, and now you're ready to get back to work.
1: I can neither confirm nor deny that beverages were consumed.
0: Yeah, that's, that's something we never talk about on this program. Uh, surely not <laughs> liberalization of said drinks. No. Uh, yeah. Well, we've got a great show, David. Uh, we've got an, a great guest um, that we're going to have on, Dr. E- Dr. Jeffrey Singer, who is a general surgeon and who is a fellow over at the Cato Institute, a uh, super smart guy, doctor. We're talking everything pandemic, everything healthcare policy, and the real reason why your bills, your medical bills are so high.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll introduce the clip with... <laughs> One funny story from that interview that our listeners won't get to hear is that uh, sometimes Yael and I, after we finished chatting with the guests, there's like a little bit of um, like post chat where we just thank them um, for participating. And, and this one, Dr. Singer goes, all right, guys, I got to go. I got a surgery in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> and So he, he, he basically went from, from being on the radio to, uh, to having to, to scrubbing in. Yeah, just scrubbing in and saving somebody's life. So uh, on that note, we'll get Jamie. Jamie, roll the the Dr. Singer interview.
0: And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, every Saturday at 10 a.m. We are very privileged to be speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. He is a general surgeon who has been in private practice for more than 35 years. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he is primarily the principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics in the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Singer.
2: I'm very happy to be here.
0: Wonderful. We've got... uh... A lot of questions. I think a lot of people are um, dealing with an online uh, sort of space where there's a lot of people who are now armchair physicians, epidemiologists. Uh, We hear a lot of stuff about medical takes from people who are not uh, medical doctors nor who know much about medicine. Uh, Can you just tell us, you know, in the past couple of months, you know, is there any sort of things that jump out at you over things that uh, perhaps we have not handled very well in this pandemic and maybe we can do a bit better at?
2: Well, I think there were a lot of lessons uh, right early on with, when the, uh, the pandemic sh- struck. Uh, uh, and examples of government failure and how a lot of government policies impeded uh, a rapid and a prompt response to the, uh, to the epidemic. So, for example, just uh, on the you know national public health agency level, uh, one of the most important responsibilities is to inform the public as to what the threat is, what they can do to Uh, mitigate the threat to their health. And for the first several weeks uh, in the United States, we were getting lots of mixed signals. You know, First they were telling us it's probably nothing may not even impact us. Then they're telling us it's going to impact us in a big way. We're getting mixed signals regarding whether or not wearing masks will help uh, reduce the spread. First we're being told very emphatically, don't wear masks please. It's a waste. And not only that, the healthcare workers need it, which of course made People wonder, wait a minute, if it's a waste, why do they need it? <laughs> but but in any case, um they were telling us that. And then they were telling us, uh, oh, wear masks by all means, anything you can get your hands on, even a cloth mask. And then when they asked uh why you didn't why you told us, you know, the other, the opposite early on. they well, it's because we really didn't want you to use masks when there was a shortage and the healthcare workers needed it more, which of course some people refer to that as a noble lie, you know. Um, but it also is not appropriate, and makes a lot of the, the public understandably say, well, how do I know I could believe anything you're telling me then? How do I know you're not lying to me continuously for what you think is my own good? So on that level, there are failures. Uh, on a regulatory level it was disaster. And the United States, which is supposed to be the bastion of free markets, uh, was it, it, they should be very embarrassed because a lot of the rest of the developed world was already uh, getting tests online, mostly developed in the private sector and adopt, adapted quickly. In the United States, uh, our, our Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, on average, it takes about 12 years for a, a drug to get approved to be used by the public, and tests could take a couple of years. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, the shorthand version of the story is that this, the CDC, when it got the uh, the genome from China in mid-January, like China gave the genome to the World Health Organization, which then gave it to the rest of the world, so tests could be developed, because tests could easily be developed once you have that. Um, the CDC essentially uh, conferred monopoly status to, I'm sorry, uh, the FDA essentially con- conferred monopoly status to the CDC uh, for the development of the test. Uh, they pretty much sent the message out to any other uh, private or public institution, that the CDC is taking care of this. And then when the CDC rolled out its tests in late February, the, the test was defective and there weren't that many. They didn't even make enough and there weren't enough places even to get it. And then hurriedly around the beginning of March, the FDA playing catch-up started uh, allowing other entities to go ahead and develop their tests and they fac- fast track their approval. Um, and eventually by mid-March, they said to the governors, You know, you states decide what tests you want to approve. Uh, You don't have to wait for the FDA to approve it. We'll have our FDA approval process as well, so there'll be two different ways people can get tests, either state-approved tests or FDA-approved tests. And that's when we started really catching up to the rest of the world. But ironically, still, many of the tests that were already being used effectively in many of the countries of the world are still not in use in the United States. Uh, One governor, Governor uh, Hogan of Maryland, When his when he realized that as as a governor he could uh, prove his own tests, he he actually got in touch with uh, South Korea and uh, met a a Korean Airlines jet at Baltimore International Airport containing five hundred thousand South Korean manufactured tests that he quickly got out to to be used in his state of Maryland. So that that was one way some tests from other countries got into the U.S.
1: And wasn't what. I may have the story wrong, but wasn't that negotiated through like a family member of his or something? Like he completely bypassed the federal channels altogether. And I think maybe it was right. his wife. His wife was, is,
2: is South Korean. Right. Yeah. And so to her contacts, he was him. But he, he was, uh, the FDA actually authorized uh, governors. They said, you know, you could do your own state approved tests. It started after Governor Cuomo of New York was complaining that, you know, the state university medical centers had developed their own tests and they were prohibited from using them in New York, which was at the time was just getting, you know, inundated with cases. Uh, And he says, why can't we use our tests? We have these tests. And, and, and eventually the FDA said, okay, go ahead and use your tests and then expanded that to, in fact, any governor, uh, we're going to leave it up to you. So uh, you know, uh, on that level too, we learned uh, from the FDA, from the regulatory uh, apparatus, it was a, our, our regulatory system is, is so Byzantine and, and sclerotic and it slowed down our response dramatically. And then other things we learned uh, was, uh, you know, state-based. So for example, um, about 35 states in the United States still have, believe it or not, certificate of need laws. So if you want to add a wing to your hospital or add some beds or in some states, if you want to add a CAT scanner, you got to get permission from some commission uh, that's usually influenced by your competitors uh, who have to determine whether we need these beds in our state. Could you imagine if you had this for restaurants, for example, you know, and you wanted to open up a nice, uh, came up with an interesting cuisine, let's say an Italian restaurant and the state commission for certificate of need of restaurants meets. And of course, a lot of Italian restaurant owners are members of that commission and they determine, you know, we have enough Italian restaurants. So, we're not gonna give you permission. So that, that's what exists in 36 states when it comes to hospitals. So many of the states suddenly uh, had a, uh, were in a problem because they didn't have enough capacity for the anticipated caseload. And uh, in some states, governors suspended them temporarily for the duration of the emergency. In some states, they didn't. So that's another obstacle. M- the biggest obstacle on the state level, in my opinion, are the licensing laws. So in order to practice in the United States, uh, you have to have a, a, a state license. Um, and uh, so a, a doctor in Arizona like me, I couldn't just go and, to New York State and help with the emergency because I don't have a New York license. So many governors, including the governor of New York, temporarily said, if you have a license in another state to practice, not just medicine, nursing, other, other healthcare uh, professions, we're going to temporarily grant you re- reciprocity. We're going to let you come and practice here because we need you. So uh, that stood in the way, Uh, as soon as this crisis is over, the old rules go back into effect. So what we need to do is look at how licensing laws are are creating obstacles to the rapid movement of healthcare professionals to areas in need.
1: And so on that licensing note, so this is something that's always struck me as, as so confusing from the patient side. What is the justification for stopping someone who is licensed in Arizona from being able to operate in a state like New York? I I know I've seen the argument made for, and this is usually bound up in the conversation of immigration, because we have so many trained professional doctors from other countries around the world, and people will, uh, will say, well, we don't know if the standards in their country are appropriate, so we... That we don't know if they can practice. Some jurisdictions got rid of those laws and, and broadened it internationally. But why do these licenses exist? And why isn't there state reciprocity across the board to say, well, if you're obviously, if you're good enough to operate in Oregon, the standards are not going to be so remarkably low that you couldn't operate in New York State or Florida. Um, what's your take on why governments do this?
2: Well, it's a very good question. Um, First of all, in our constitutional system, the state does have uh, the authority, uh, the, what's called the police power, in the interest of the health and safety of its, uh, of its citizens, to license people. Um, originally, there were virtually no occupational licenses in any field, including medicine. The American Medical Association was created in the mid-1800s with the express goal of getting states to license doctors. And you'll find historically, regardless whether you're talking about doctors, nurses, plumbers, carpenters, the groups wanting the licensing tend to be the actual people doing the work. And it's primarily aimed at, it's, it's, it's said, it's, they say it's in the name of the health and safety of the people, but it's actually a way of restricting competition, of keeping other people locked out. And while, while you might think it guarantees safety. Uh, The fact is that most of the safety is really guaranteed by private institutions. So you're exactly right. Why can't, uh, in the United States, every single one of the 50 states in the District of Columbia have virtually identical requirements to get a license. Yet you have to go through the same application process and pay fees and all that if you wanna practice in another state. Now Arizona, where I live, in 2019 became the first state they had a comprehensive occupational licensing law reform which said if you hold a license in good standing in any of the things that our state requires a license for because some states require licenses for things that other states don't then when you come to our state um, we will recognize that license You, you might have to pay a licensing fee to the licensing board but you don't have to go through the long process, you know, uh, you you get a license here. Uh, after that happened in Arizona, Pennsylvania and Montana passed similar laws, and now Missouri is in the process of doing the same thing. So that's a step in the right direction. It'd be great if every state did that. Um, but uh, ideally, you know, for example, most people don't realize this, when I get a license to practice medicine, that doesn't uh, put any restrictions on what I, what specialty I could practice. So if I decided I was really interested in psychiatry, even though I'm trained as a surgeon, and I start reading up on it and going to psychiatric psychiatry courses, etc., I could you know, hang a sign up in my office, saying I'm a psychiatrist, and start practicing psychiatry. So that, uh, there's no reason why I can't. What, what prevents a person who's not good at psychiatry or trained in it from practicing? Well, you have these private certification boards, and there are numbers of them Uh, American Board of Psychiatry, American Board of Surgery. These are private entities that examine you and and re-examine you, and they pass judgment. They certify you as whether or not they think that you're competent in that specialty. In addition to that, hospitals and insurance companies credential you. They check you out because the hospital doesn't want you on on their staff if they're worried that you're not competent. Uh, insurance companies don't want you on their panel of providers if they're going to have problems with you and get complaints and get a, it'll affect their reputation as well. So actually, all of the due diligence is done by the private sector. So, And, and, and all the licensing does is a cursory uh, evaluation as to whether or not you graduated a medical school, for example, yeah. an accredited medical school. And even then, uh, the licensing boards consider an accredited medical school an American Medical Association approved medical school. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, people who try to get into the acting business in Hollywood, you can't get a, a, a role unless you have a SAG card, but you can't get a SAG card unless you've had a few roles and it's that kind of thing. So the AMA still has a lock and originally, I'm not blaming the modern AMA, but the original intent of it was to restrict the number of doctors produced And the same thing happens with foreign doctors. So in the United States, if you graduated medical school in a a developed country uh, and uh, you got board certified in your specialty in that country and you've been practicing and licensed and all that, and you decide you want to come to America, you have to repeat the entire residency program, which could be anywhere from three to five years in order to even qualify for a license by a state. And expensive, I would assume. Oh, very expensive. And this is not not even getting into the visa problems to get a visa to do that. But aside from that, so um, there's a whole lot of of healthcare practitioners who are experienced would love to come here and are prohibited from doing so. In other countries, like in Canada, Australia, and a lot of members of the EU, they actually have programs set up. It's called provisional licensing, where in Canada, there's a set, a list of 29 Countries that are considered to be uh, advanced and developed enough, where where it's understood that the uh, graduate of their medical training program is going to be on par with Canadians and American and United States citizens. So, if you're from one of those uh, schools, uh, programs rather, countries, you have to take a very cursory exam to convince. Uh, the provincial authorities that you really are up to speed. And then uh, you're usually supervised by, uh, uh, there's several uh, healthcare practitioners who serve on a supervisory panel. They've agreed to do this. You're watched for six to 12 months in your practice. And then um, that supervisor gives the green light that you're good to go. And in, in Nova Scotia, for example, they even have a program because they're very. They have a lot of. They're an underserved area. Don't have enough doctors. Yep. So they have a program that even if you're not from one of those twenty-nine countries, if you're in primary care, which is lacking there, um, they'll uh, if after you're supervised for a, a period of time, they'll they'll still let you practice if the supervisor approves it, providing you agree to to practice in an underserved area. And and many of these immigrants, the reason they're coming to North America. Is because where they live they don 't want to live there, and so this is a gift. other countries have spent money training these people, and they 're going to they want to come here and take care of, of us and our patients it 's a gift an actual that 's like reverse foreign aid and and yeah our state licensing laws you know turn it down so uh, and then when it comes to telemedicine, we learned another lesson in the uh, from the pandemic. Same thing, the licensing laws get away that. So if I want to practice tele, tele, telemedicine, the technology for that has been around for a long time and it's getting even better. So you could even, you know, do cardiograms via telemedicine and check a person's blood pressure, oxygenation, blood sugar, all sorts of things by a telemedicine. But I'm only allowed to deliver telemedicine to a person within the state that I'm licensed. So uh, a, a, a person from, I'm in Arizona. I could take care of another Arizona in telemedicine. I can't take care of a person in New Mexico or California or Nevada because I don't have a license to practice in those states. And then think about it this way. If, if I, I have, let's say, uh, you know, uh, an, a very ex- exotic health problem and there's this professor at UCLA Medical School in Los Angeles who's the renowned authority on this, knows more about this than anybody. I want to get an opinion from that professor. So I get in the car, drive six hours to Los Angeles, have an appointment, I spend a 45-minute appointment with this doctor, I'm given uh, medications, and I'm supposed to follow up in three months, but it'll be a brief 10-minute follow-up. I can't follow up by telemedicine with that doctor unless that doctor has a license in Arizona. I have to get back in my car and drive all the way over there for a 10-minute appointment. Why should that be? So those things have been temporarily suspended by most states to deal with the pandemic, but it goes back to the old way when- um, In the pandemic solved,
1: and you, so you, it almost seems like the the system as it is is siloing medical professionals within these these state boundaries. Which, for people like Ya'el now, they, that just seems ridiculous. Because you want you like you use the example of let's say some someone who's particularly renowned in their field. You want to have access to them as quickly and as uh, economically as possible. Uh, but it gets me thinking about the drug approval process and how we can often silo medications within different jurisdictions. Uh, one thing that Yaël and I had had chatted about in a, in a previous episode, and we've written on it vaguely, is approving uh, approving treatments and drugs that are approved in other OECD countries, and having some sort of reciprocity agreement where and I always say, well, if it's good enough for Germans, it's good enough for North Carolinians, and it's good enough for people in Florida or Arizona. Uh, is there any appetite for that? Do you see anything being pushed in that field where where you you basically open up the pool of what's an accepted uh, stamp of approval from a from a regulator perspective?
2: Yeah, actually, the idea has been around for has been around for a while in Washington, in the EU, as you know. Uh, the way it works is uh, if, let's say, the French version of the FDA approves a drug for use in France, then uh, that uh, manufacturer doesn't have to get the equivalent approval by the German FDA or the Dutch FDA or you know for Spanish FDA or whatever because they give reciprocity. So the, the EU basically says if it's approved by the regulatory agency in one of the EU member countries, it's good enough. For the rest of the EU, and there are other countries, Australia and New Zealand, and I think Singapore. Any drug that's FDA approved by the U.S. FDA automatically gets uh, a, approval in those countries. So uh, that's one proposal that's been out there. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Mike Lee of uh, of uh, Utah introduced the bill. I think it's two thousand six was the sixteen two thousand sixteen was the first time. Uh, it 's not gone anywhere, but they 've introduced a bill where for uh, any drug that 's approved uh, by, uh, from a list of approved countries the country in other words, you know the policymakers could come to an agreement on what countries they think their FDA equivalents have a track record like the u s fDA and any drug that 's approved by them be given a reciprocal approval by the u s fda so that 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 's unfortunately not gone anywhere, but it gets introduced every uh, congressional session. And they, ha- uh, uh, a sort of a temporary COVID version was introduced recently that says that it would make it the case at least during the life of a public health emergency, which is, you know, it's, that's only for the public health emergency, but at least it gets people introduced to the idea. Um, there's a, uh, I would assume that there's going to be some pushback from the U.S. pharmaceutical manufacturers who don't like the competition. Uh, other ways, other proposals out there are, why do you have to have the FDA approve it? For example, can't, uh, s- since we, all of us as humans, have the right to self-medicate, I mean, it's part of our right to life. And if we want to take something that we think is going to help us, we shouldn't be denied that. Just like everyone recognizes our right to informed consent. there's not Nobody would argue that if I don't want a particular treatment, you can't force me. Everybody agrees with that. Well, why don't they feel the same way? Which is if I do want a particular treatment, you can't stop me. I, you could tell me all the dangers of it and make me very aware, but it still should be my decision because it's my life. So uh, another proposal is how about allowing people to choose? So you could purchase a drug that says FDA approved, or if it's not FDA approved, but let's say it's approved by the FDA of France, it must clearly say on a label, not FDA approved, but approved by the FDA of France. And you make the decision. Uh, So that's another proposal that would help things. a third one is to build on uh, the FDA's temporary um, uh, devolution of... Decision making to the states regarding tests, it shouldn't just be tests. It should be drugs as well. So uh, we could have it where you you have uh, two tracks. You could have FDA approved, or you could have state of New York approved. Uh, and state of New York may decide that they're going to approve a drug that's approved by the FDA of Switzerland. So that's a kind of a backdoor way of getting, uh, you know, reciprocity. Uh, any, any of these ideas that increases competition, increases choice, and respects the right of us as humans to self-medicate is a step in the right direction.
0: And no doubt you're speaking our, our language there, Consumer Choice Radio, here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM. We're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Um, Dr. Singer, I was going through some of your archives of, of different articles that you've written And there's one that you wrote here, editorial. Healthcare isn't about producing plastic cards. And this is a a large pet peeve um, that David and I have have definitely mentioned, is that we've gone through this entire era of the last decade talking about healthcare reform, healthcare reform, when really it just seems like it's all about health insurance and almost nothing about care, nothing about how much it's going to cost me as a patient. And any of these solutions just seem like they're going to make it worse. Would that be accurate?
2: Yeah, I think most most people use the terms interchangeably, health insurance and health care, and they're not. Health insurance is just a, a, a payment mechanism for health care. And, of course, it usually involves a third party who has to make decisions, the one who's doing the paying. So uh, people equate that uh, with health care, but they're wrong. Like the, some of the things we just covered, Healthcare care is multifaceted. It involves... Uh, if you really want to reform healthcare to improve quality and improve choice and lower costs, you need to address the regulatory uh, system that involves, for example, pharmaceuticals. Uh, you need to involve, address licensing laws. Um, and uh, I left out when I was discussing licensing laws that these licensing laws include scope of practice. So many, again, you get into this competition between the different uh, healthcare fields where they're kind of getting into turf battles. And there are a lot of people who are very well trained, uh, nurse practitioners, for example, who are not allowed to to practice to the extent to which they've been trained because uh, of lobbying at the state legislature, convincing the regulators that that should be left to physicians, for example. Well, first of all, we as patients, have, we should have the right to decide. Uh, and second, uh, we're, we're not taking full advantage of the training these people have and the competition is always good. It lowers the price, it increases choice, and usually it also leads to increases in quality because they're competing not just on the basis of, of price, but on the basis of outcome results. Um, so when we just look at insurance, we're just looking at a way to pay for the existing dysfunctional system. So, you know, each year the politicians have a big debate over whether there should be one payer f- for the existing dysfunctional healthcare we get. That's, you know that's redundant and wasteful, and in many cases, error-ridden? Or do you want to have two payers for that, or three? Or do you want to have the government decide what the payer has to pay for and what you have to pay for yourself? But we're arguing, it's like we're rearranging the deck chairs on a on, uh, on Titanic. This is, uh, requires a systemic reform. We don't have, in the United States, a free market healthcare system. People think that. We have uh, basically a government-run healthcare system uh, where uh, the government on every single level, who could practice, what they can practice, what you could have, what drugs you can have, what tests you can take, and wh- what doctors you could see is all determined either directly or indirectly through government mediators. Uh, in general, the the role of insurance, if you look at insurance in any other area, whether they are talking about auto insurance or homeowners insurance or travelers insurance, or traveler's insurance this is to ensure you, the this the concept was invented as a, a response to the fact that the market couldn't respond to unknowns. It, 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 insurance is a way of dealing with unforeseeable catastrophic events. So uh, what you're basically doing in that case is, since we're all we, none of us know what could happen to any of us in this particular area, and it can cost a lot of money. We're pooling the risk on unforeseeable catastrophic events. But over time, and again, largely due to government interventions, the way, that, the way it treats the tax treatment of uh, insurance. So if your employer provides you the insurance, then that's not a taxable benefit. Whereas if you buy it on your own, you got to pay it for it with after-tax dollars. All these kind of things have led to a situation where ins- insurance has evolved into basically a prepaid health care. Uh, your auto insurance wouldn't cover oil changes, routine maintenance on the car, getting new tires. Your homeowner's insurance wouldn't cover getting the house painted, getting new drapes, new flooring. But when it comes to health insurance, it covers all the bells and whistles. And when a third person, a third party, I mean, is paying for something, then the consumer and the provider are not directly in, in, interacting. The consumer is actually taken out of the loop. I can tell you this is I'm in private practice as a surgeon. When I'm negotiating a price for my operation that I'm going to perform, I'm not negotiating with the patient. I'm negotiating with the person who's going to pay the bill, which is the insurance company or you know medicare or medicaid or whatever the, the case may be and the actual recipient of the care is, is is not involved in this discussion which is could you imagine if we dealt with anything else that way if, if your groceries were obtained that way if you had grocery insurance and, and and imagine how much all the groceries would cost and if you were unlucky enough not to have grocery insurance and you needed a dozen eggs i bet you they'd cost five times the amount that they would otherwise cost because when I'm negotiating with the third-party payer, the third-party party has got a much deeper pocket than the actual patient. So if I want, let's say, $1,000 for my surgery, I'm going to ask for 2500 And then we negotiate from there. And usually the third-party payer, which has pooled money from all the other customers, will agree to something like 1800 which is 800 more than I was willing to accept. I never expected 2,500. And that explains why a lot of people, when they get a bill, they'll see this outrageous price. And then they will see a cut down to what with a pre the a pre-agreed to contract price, which is still usually higher than, <laughs> than the price would be if the market was working. And I can attest to that because every once in a while, uh, I'll have a patient who doesn't have insurance and says, I'll pay you cash. What would you charge me for this operation? And it's much lower than I charge the insurance companies and the hospitals when I contact the hospital or the outpatient surgery center. And I say, I have a patient who has no insurance, he's paying cash. How much will you charge us for the use of your facility? It comes down way lower than it would be if we were dealing with a third party.
0: That's so, why one thing Dr. Yeah. Singer that I've been a huge fan of is direct primary care. Um, so I'm yeah, a yeah. member of a, of a clinic. I pay the subscription to the doctor every month. Every time I go see him, I normally have my free physical. And if I need anything else, the prices are listed right there. It's cash. There's no insurance accepted. And because of that, he doesn't need to have any insurance person um, sort of doing all the administration and claims in his office. And it keeps the prices really low. Is that something that, that you yeah. kind of are favorable towards?
2: Um, very, very much so. Also, uh, there's a, a place in Oklahoma City called the Surgery Center of Oklahoma.
1: I was just about to mention them and ask, me, yeah, yeah. Uh, ask you your thoughts on them.
2: Yeah, they, I actually, I, I got to know Keith Smith, who founded it. He's an anesthesiologist in Oklahoma City. And uh, well over 10 years ago now, he uh, is a very believer, deep believer in free markets. He was working for one of the most uh, prominent anesthesia private groups in, in the city. He quit. I think he convinced a couple of, of his associates to quit with him. Uh, they got some venture capital. They purchased uh, uh, a distressed surgical center refurbished it and made it into a surgical hospital. They take no third party, no Medicare, no Medicaid, no insurance, uh, and because of that, they don't have to use these crazy coding system, and they can bundle, which bundled payments is another way of saving money. So, for example, if you go on their website, uh, it'll say our procedures, and there's a drop down menu, and let's say you want to have a, a laparoscopic gallbladder operation. Uh, it'll say, l- let's say, I'm, I'm, I'm not knowing no the exact price, but it's something like $5,600. That includes the surgeon's fee, the anesthesiologist's fee, the use of the OR, all the equipment, etc. all w- one bundle price. I could tell you that in, in the third-party payer sector, that's going to be way more. First of all, um, they're going to probably, at least where I am, There's a good chance you'll just the facility charge, just to use the room, is gonna be maybe twenty thousand dollars. Now they're gonna cut down to around six (laughs) because of negotiation. And then you got the anesthesiologist fee and the surgeon's fee and and any equipment. And so uh the total bill will be way more than that. It's it turns out that it's so uh way below third-party payment prices that many employers who are self-insured have actually flown their patients, their employees, from wherever they are to Oklahoma City to get their surgery done. And they found it saves them money to fly them to Oklahoma City, get their surgery done, put the family up overnight or so in a a nearby hotel and fly them back. It still saves them money. And the city of Oklahoma City, which is self-insured, told its employees that if you need a surgical procedure and you get it done uh, there, then there won't be any out of pocket for you. Whereas otherwise there will be out of pocket if you, if you go to other providers.
1: So, so this is just an example. So in Oklahoma City, the cost is so much lower at this clinic that, that the, the public employee, the, the the city has eliminated like a copay essentially? If you use that place, because it saves them money, even without, wow. even without having,
2: even, even by eliminating the copay, they still come out way ahead because of the difference in markups.
1: That's incredible.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, I, Doctor Smith told me. Keith Smith, the, the, who runs it, he's an anesthesiologist. Told me, he, he, they got about forty or so surgical specialists. They're all sort of investors, and but he's the he runs it, and he he uh, got got sat down with the orthopedists, for example. There are a few of them. He says, I need you guys to have a meeting and come to an agreement on on your best price that you will accept for the, all of the things you want to do here. And then he said, likewise to the ear, nose and throat guys, and likewise to the general surgeons. And then that became the price. So you have a price list and the price list doesn't matter which of, this is the price to get that done at this location. And the prices are just a fraction of what they are, it would be if you went using the third party payment system. And that's because there's a direct negotiation between the consumer
1: and the provider. That's, uh, yeah, it's it's incredible to hear that that public employees would be incentivized to basically avoid their insurance plans and, and opt for this clinic instead. Uh, I remember when I, I mean, I'm Canadian, so uh, there is a ripe attitude of anti-Americanism in Canada, especially when it comes to healthcare. Um, and Canadians are known for being, uh, uncomfortably humble with the exception of when it comes to healthcare, we are the exact opposite. Um, that being said, the thought of, and, and this actually happened in my, in my own life where I needed to have a particular sinus surgery and the, the clinic basically said, or the, the doctor's office said, okay, well, are you, in, are you available in February of 2021? And I was like, Whoa, I mean, I guess, yeah, I might be available. And then I actually looked, it's like, okay, well, what would the cost be if I were to go to a clinic like the one you just mentioned? And it was a very different way of looking at how healthcare is provided. And I think that the emphasis you have on having the conversation be between doctor and patient is a really important one, not just on what needs to get done, but also on what the pricing structure can look like for it. And I know that in some, in, in, in some instances that happens in dentistry um, here, like I know of several people who've gone into their dentist and said, Hey, like I don't have insurance for this. What can I pay cash? And they'll come up with the price and they figure it out. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see how that would be applied to the system more broadly. Uh, well, we have
2: examples here in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada as well, uh, things that are not covered by health insurance and, and Canadian system as well. So, for example, when it comes to uh, cosmetic surgery or LASIK eye surgery, um, there's advertisements, there's, there's price competition, and the price of all these things has come down over the years. LASIK eye surgery, when it first came out, was thousand, like $5,000 per eye. Now it's a few hundred dollars per eye. You can get a uh, Groupon uh, for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's because there's no third-party payment. Most people don't use dental insurance. There are some, but most people don't. And same thing, you negotiate a, a much better price. Now, I understand, you correct me if I'm wrong, but in Canada, the Canadian uh, health, health Canada doesn't cover most prescriptions. Correct. So I wonder, I wonder, you would know better than me, if that plays a role in drug prices being generally
1: lower in Canada than in the U.S., Yeah, so most most, uh, prescription drugs are not covered by your provincial insurance system. Uh, However, benefits are primarily provided by your place of employment. And you can, if you are, let's say, self-employed, have insurance that would help cover some of those costs. What I can tell you is that when you're actually meeting with a doctor and they prescribe you a particular medicine, the first question is, do you have insurance or not? And then that mm. usually determines whether or not they're going to be prescribing you the generic version or the brand name version of a particular drug, depending on what your ailment is. Uh, sometimes there's no way around that. Uh, and the cost can be, can be fairly high, but the system is is more like the provision of U S medicine um, than it is where you're actually negotiating because so many people are, operating through their insurance, which is provided by their employer. So I think you have some of that convolutedness where it's like, you look at, you're like, okay, this only cost me $10 because my employer's insurance package covers uh, 5%. But that means that the actual medicine was way, way higher in price.
2: We have a paper coming out, uh, uh, Michael Cannon, the Director of Health Policy Studies at Cato and I have a white paper coming out that goes into some of this, hopefully be out within the next uh, month or so, um, called Drug Reformation. And we point out that there's so much evidence that when a drug is reclassified from prescription only to over-the-counter, the the prices drop dramatically. And prescription drugs are covered by insurance over-the-counter drugs are not. And you can see the prices come down as soon as they become subject to market forces where people are actually shopping, price comparison shopping. You know, you ask your pharmacist, I see there are three different, uh, let's say, decongestants. Each one is slightly different chemical. They each claim to do the same thing. Is there any one better? And the pharmacist may say, actually, they're all roughly equivalent in terms of their effectiveness. Oh, well, then I'll take the less expensive one. And that's the kind of thing that goes on. Uh, actually, we will show in our paper that when it comes to birth control pills, birth control pills were usually not covered by health insurance. And generally speaking, they're not very expensive. You can get birth control pills for as low as about you know ten to twelve dollars a month at Costco, depending on where you went and what kind of pill you want. So um, the part the Affordable Care Act required. Uh, birth control pills to be provided by the third party, by the insurance company, with no out-of-pocket. So using data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we tracked this, and you could see that uh, birth control pills, even though they're prescription only in the United States, uh, even they're not prescription only in, in like 102 countries, but they are in the United States, uh, even though birth control pills prior to the ACA being passed were trending down in price along with prescription pills, everything was kind of on a downward slope. When uh, the ACA took effect and birth control pills were no longer out of pocket, uh, uh, the price of birth control pills shot up way higher than the price of the other prescription pain uh, other prescription medications uh, as well as over the over the counter medications they just skyrocketed way out of proportion to what you would have expected and that 's because suddenly people weren't paying for it, so nobody really cared what the price was and so the manufacturers could tell the pharmaceutical benefit management companies, which are the middlemen between the, the drugstores and, and the pharmacy manufacturers, they could just do like we surgeons do and, you know, inflate the price in order to get a better price. It's a negotiation. So if you are willing to take $10, you're going to ask the, the, the pharmaceutical benefit uh, management company for $50 and you'll agree to 15 which is still $5 more than you were willing to take. And that's what's happened with birth control pills.
0: Wow. It seems like all of this market mechanisms, you know, rear their nasty head and provide uh... Lower prices for those who want them yes. yet again. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Uh, Dr. Singer, thank you so much. You've been uh, very gracious with your time. Uh, it's great to, to be able to chat with you about a lot of these issues. I know that uh, your pen is also very busy and you, you write many articles. You're on many other programs. What else are you working on at the moment or what are you promoting here in, in the next uh, several weeks?
2: Well, uh, on August 5th, we're going to have uh, a webcast, live webcast. It's free. Anybody can just go to uh, the Cato Institute's website, cato.org, and it's going to be called "Doctors with Borders: Embracing uh, Immigrant Doctors," uh, and we're going to discuss just what we discussed earlier in this program, how uh, this gift of foreign-trained uh, healthcare pr- practitioners uh, is being rejected by, by state licensing boards, and uh, we're going to—it's going to be a, a one-hour uh, uh, discussion. We're going to have with us one uh, uh, an immigrant doctor who. Jumped through all those hoops and now is a very successful oncologist, even though he was trained and a specialist in rehab medicine in his native Pakistan and was actually teaching at the medical school. He had to go through a residency program all over again in the U.S. and became uh, the only one available was in oncology, so he took it. And now he's an excellent oncologist. We're also gonna have Paul uh, Larkin from the Heritage Foundation is gonna speak about it. And then uh, Alex Narasta from the Cato Institute is the Director of Immigration uh, Policy Studies. Because you can't discuss allowing uh, foreign doctors to come to the United States without getting into the immigration law obstacles. So he's gonna address that. So that's coming up August 5th. Uh, On October 8th, I'm gonna be hosting, moderating a conference on uh, how racism has infused uh, the war on drugs, both domestic and foreign, and metastasized. Our war on drug has met- drugs has metastasized uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere and, and much of the world. And it also, the racist element of it has metastasized with it. So we're going to have a, a conference on that. That's going to have Deborah Small, Radley Balco, and uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, who is a foreign policy senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Uh, And then uh, we have this white paper coming out in the next few weeks called Drug Reformation, which is going to get into a lot of what we were talking about today regarding uh, uh, FDA regulatory reform. And I'm always doing a lot of work uh, on uh, the opioid overdose issue and uh, the war on drugs. I'm I'm always working in that area.
0: Wonderful. You can follow uh, Dr. Singer's work over on Cato.org and also Twitter at Dr. Four, the number four, Liberty. Dr. Singer, thanks so much for taking the time with us.
1: Thank you very much. And
0: we're back after that amazing interview with Dr. Singer. I really would encourage a lot of you to follow him and his work, yeah, he's doing more and more in the field of policy analysis. So it's awesome to get his perspective, not just generally, but also here on Consumer Choice Radio. So awesome, awesome thing, David. Um, so yeah, what what uh, what's been going on with you? I guess uh, it is now a new month. Uh, we're we're in the month of August now. Uh, pretty much half the summer is already gone. We've uh, the the pandemic has kept us indoors, but I guess some of us have been able to enjoy ourselves, but. Oh man, it's uh, it, it's almost fall. Isn't that crazy to think about?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of flown by. You, you don't. Next thing you know, it'll be winter here, and there'll be a foot of snow, and everyone will be miserable.
0: <laughs> the only difference being that there'll be snow.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, going through this with like a full blown winter would just suck. Because I mean, you, you, then you're really not getting outside. You're not going on a bike ride or a long walk or any of the very li- the, any of the little things that we maybe took for granted. You're not getting any of those. Inside.
0: And if you're stuck indoors, it's likely that you're going to be using many technological devices and apps. And that brings us to our our <laughs> yes. next topic of concern. Uh, this week we saw on Capitol Hill uh, the hearing of the tech giants. This is in the antitrust subcommittee in the United States House of Representatives where you had the CEOs or heads of Apple. Uh, we had Facebook, Google, and did I say Apple? Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon. Uh they're all in the house, uh or they're all connected via WebEx. And they gave their testimonies and they were grilled by both uh, Democratic and Republican Congressmen and women over their supposed market crimes. Uh, there's a lot of great clips and uh, memes that have come out of this. But uh, David, I don't know if you caught any of that. If you have any uh, any assessment, uh, I know there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of great stories about Jeff Bezos's uh, opening statement and his uh, written statement mm-hmm. that was shared around uh, by Amazon.
1: Yeah. Um, so. Before we get into Bezos, I have to say that watching the watching or like getting into what this exchange was, immediately I, I go back to this skit by a comedian called Bill Bill Engvall, and it's called "Here's Your Sign." And anytime someone says something that's absolutely ridiculous, he gives them a sign that says "I'm stupid," and there were several congressmen deserving of that here's song. your like, son here's <laughs> yeah. your son oh man like when 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 zuckerberg is asked well why did you uh why did you censor donald
0: trump jr it's like that was on twitter man it's the wrong company no he does like, this he goes congressman uh, i believe what you're referring to happened with the uh, twitter uh cannot speak to those actions <laughs>
1: Yeah. Like how many time, how many congressional hearings do we have to go through before one of these guys does enough research to not look like a complete. Imbecile? And
0: the thing, yeah. And it is their staff who, you know, they're probably arming them with a lot, no doubt. Uh, I think probably 80% of the elected representatives there don't really understand the, the more technical topics. You know, they might understand if they have a personal, let's say Facebook group or, or, you know, use some kind of Mac device or whatever. Maybe they understand it, but they don't really understand the technical thing. I'll give you a good example. We had Representative Johnson, I think Hank Johnson from Georgia. Um, So he's a Democrat and was asking uh, Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, about the Apple Store. And he said, so you guys created this amazing uh, Apple Store and App Store where people can download apps for for your iPhone, right? Uh, yes, sir. He's like, and, uh, you know, you open this up to developers and uh, people are able to make apps on there that they can sell to customers, right? He's like, mm-hmm. He's like, okay, so there's uh, there's some talk that you might prefer your own apps to what these other guys are building. It seems as if you haven't built a fair marketplace. And I started to think about it, and it's like, well, they didn't have to open it up to any outside developers. It could have just been Apple produces every single app in there, but rather they created this kind of new third-party marketplace where anybody can make and sell an app. And the other question was about commission. I think the standard is, I don't know what it is, like 15% or something. He's like, well, are you guys thinking about raising it? And Tim Cook says, you know, we, we have never raised it in our entire history, and we have absolutely no plans to He goes, yes, but are you going to raise it? <laughs> I think this is the kind of yeah, stuff you- that makes a lot of people who just tune in for two seconds and be like, okay, these people have no idea what they're talking about.
1: Well just imagine, just imagine sitting down the executive from Netflix and be like, Okay, so you guys have made this platform where people from all over the world can watch all of the movies that they want. Yes. And you make your own content, right? Yes. And you make you make more money on your own content than you do the other content that that you have added to the And your algorithm favors that's correct. Yeah. It's like, is that fair? It's like, dude, we create it's our platform, you're in,
0: dude. It's you're good. in the store right now. This is a Wendy's, and you're sitting inside the Wendy's <laughs> right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like going to a Wendy's. Can I get a Big Mac? No, sir. This is Wendy's, but we can get you a, a Dave single.
0: Mm, doesn't seem fair. Not fair. Nuh-uh. Doesn't seem I fair. I want to have a whopper. Doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, just garbage. I mean, the thing is, is that these are mostly for show. I will say that the hero or the MVP. Of all of this is jeff bezos Mm -hmm. um i know that you dug more into his um his uh, appearance than i did but from what i've seen and read just a great story of someone who against all odds became the richest man in the world and a lot of people look at jeff i mean First off, when we talk about Amazon and Bezos, it's so misreported because people will be like, Oh, he made thirteen billion dollars yesterday. And it's like, well, his holdings increased in value. They're not liquid. It's not oh, yeah. like it doesn't he's got it doesn't 13... drop into his
0: cash app, you know, or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and most of the time when reporters are reporting on this, it would be actually illegal for him to sell um, in any mass sell or, or short period of time. Um but yeah, what a success story. Someone who came from uh, a teenage mother raised, raised by an adopted, uh, his, his adoptive uh, stepfather slash stepfather, I suppose, who himself was a Cuban uh, refugee fleeing Castro's Cuba. I mean, this is like the American dream, guys, talking about people who can, who can create things and so much value um, from such humble beginnings. I mean, there are very few countries in the world where that, uh, where that type of story is even possible, and yet there he is, uh, trying to defend himself as if he's some evil supervillain. When, I mean, the only th- the biggest thing that they are, that Amazon is guilty of in this pandemic is making sure that not leaving our houses is easy. Yeah,
0: I think the the one charge that they were trying to needle Bezos with was the existence of these Amazon Basics products. Um, so mm-hmm. these are the products that you might see in your Amazon store that are actually made by Amazon themselves. And they have like the Amazon logo and brand, and they're always prime, usually cheaper. And the idea is that Amazon has seen all the data and they've seen all the all the coolers that are made by whatever company and is sold on Amazon. They say, okay, the price point is whatever, 50, 50 bucks. We're going to sell one that's 45 bucks, slap our name on it, and more people are more apt to buy it. Uh, That seems to me just like good salesmanship. And by the way, I bought one of these Amazon coolers because it was cheaper and better, (laughs) and everything else was just ridiculous. And there was one other uh, needling that that really got my goat. It's by Representative Jerry Nadler. Um, Sincerely one of the most detestable congressmen um, in this entire thing. He he was big in the impeachment hearings and things like this. Um, So he's going against Zuckerberg this time, the Zuck. And the Zuck, by the way, seemed like the most free market dude up there. But the Zuck is uh, on the hot seat because it was around Instagram and Facebook purchasing Instagram. And what Nather was trying to, uh, trying to get Zuckerberg to say is, oh, we bought Instagram to buy them out because they were potential competition what zuckerberg said is like look they were like a nobody company like yeah they were a little bit popular but they they were like nowhere we took it we rebuilt it we scaled it up you know we added all of our technology all of our engineers and now it's one of the most popular apps you can't come after us in the future because in the past we made a smart decision that's not like breaking some law and that's what nadler and a lot of these guys were saying is like you broke the law because you were a really good company
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like in hindsight, you made a great investment and you built this company to be something that nobody thought it would be. And I think a lot of people lose perspective because Instagram is obviously this giant now. But when they paid, I think it was a billion dollars for Instagram off of whoever the original creators And I think
0: those founders are still at Facebook. I think they still kind of run it.
1: Yeah, I think they do. Um, Everybody laughed. Yeah, it was a joke. Everybody laughed. (laughs) Yeah. John Stewart did a five minute skit being like, Facebook, you bought an app where people could share photos? You're idiots. Like this is the worst idea ever. And because it's Facebook and they're particularly primed for um, building platforms like that, it grew and it expanded and lots of people use it and people make a living off of being popular on the platform and they use it to uh, share pictures to share ideas. It becomes that open marketplace, and so yeah, it's kind of like in hindsight, you're like, oh well, man, you guys, you guys really cornered the market by making a good investment that we all laughed at years ago that panned out. So maybe we should break you up. It's like,
0: it's, I don't think that's how it should work. No, and what kind of signal does that say to anyone who's trying to create a product, you know, for the future? If you become successful you know your your fate is not to you know feel great because you've you've given uh, awesome goods and services to millions of people your fate is on the hot seat in congress being grilled by people who don't understand your product don't understand the value of your product i mean what a terrible scenario this is why would anyone want to create oh, yeah. a company or do a product if that's the end result
1: yeah if you know that the boot of government is just going to come in and be like oh sorry guys you're too big now. You're too successful. And I think people forget why these companies become so large. They become so large because we're shopping at them.
0: Oh yeah. Cause there's if millions we of customers and people are repeat buyers and they buy memberships and yeah. everything else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Amazon is as large as it is because we all use it. If we didn't use it, it wouldn't be that large. I mean, they're not, they're not a trillion dollar company or whatever they're valued at now because the government is is feeding them uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars of of grants. Like they're not they're not leeching off of the public system to the point where they're getting so large. They're getting large because we use those services on a on a regular basis, and they're providing value for us, and we keep using them. And so I it really, I'm always perplexed by the mindset that. That is somehow a negative thing. You're not wrong. And there's something bad about
0: that. And and speaking of getting Uh, used, um, you've been listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll have to wrap up here for the hour. Uh, Thanks so much for listening in. Be sure to go to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com.
1: Please be sure to like and subscribe. Follow both Yael and I on Twitter. And if you're joining on the radio, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Consumer Choice Radio.